So we're on page five. And I think, I'm trying to remember where we left off last. Did we deal with Isaiah 6, 1 to 7? I don't remember doing any of Isaiah. Okay, so maybe we, I think we stopped with Psalms. Okay. Well, we did do this one. We did Psalm. We did the first. The first Isaiah one, one, Isaiah 1, 10 to 20. Okay, so let's start with Isaiah 6, 1 to 7. And uh, why don't you go ahead and, and read those verses for us. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Keep going? Um, No, I think that's it. I think we did actually cover this last week. So just briefly, what does this have to do with salvation? He has his sins blotted out and forgiven. His guilt is forgiven. Mm-hmm. And it, it comes from a a coal from off the altar touching his lips. It seems to me that the, the coal represents the atonement. Mm-hmm. There's something about the death of Jesus, uh, particularly the fire that consumes, that takes away sin. Uh, what does that represent? So we're talking about salvation and atonement. We think of the blood as, as creating this. Yeah. We don't think of the fire as doing this, or a coal. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't there similar language in, um, like, gold tried in the fire? Ah, faith and love mm-hmm. uh, tried in, in the fire. That's, that's what that gold represents. That's a that's a good analogy. Any other places that we can think of? Remember that Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire. They didn't offer the fire that God lit on the altar, and they offered strange fire, and and were consumed. And then there was the fire and the candlesticks. That yeah. Is it possible that the fire represents God's presence and? His glory, which uh, if you go to Hebrews twelve twenty nine, God, our God is a consuming fire, uh, because it, it seems to be parallel with. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heavenly forces. Seeing Him, uh, seeing Him brings out this this sense of guilt, this sense of, of unworthiness in Isaiah, and uh, you know the story of Moses. Also and you said the story of Moses with his face shining. In fact. Um, I, was, I have in my notes Exodus 33 and 34 where God says no one can see my face and live. It is, is it not the glory of his face is his mercy? I mean, in ancient Near Eastern understanding, um, when a king looked upon his subject who came to see him, he looked, he, it was a look of favor. If, if he looked on him, it meant that he was in good graces with the king. If the king turned his face away, it meant death for him usually um, so so this is God's mercy that's so glorious we can't behold it but that is also what saves us forgives us takes away our guilt our sin His, um, it's also interesting that it might have several meanings because um, in the New Testament um, there's the we go through these 
fiery tribulations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I don't think the tribulations are God's grace necessarily, His mercy. Oh, they, they might have a merciful aspect. Right, we might right. need them, but yeah, we, they don't feel merciful at they all. They don't come from that. <laughs> yeah. But I just think it's interesting that there might yeah. be that too, you know. Yeah, fire has a lot of symbolism in the Bible. <clears throat> and in fact, the seraph that had the winged creature that flies, it comes from seraph, which means to burn. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a fiery creature that comes and brings this coal off the altar. So, lots to ponder. Uh, Isaiah 9, 1-7. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation, and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is confused with noise, and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The seal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. All right. So this passage is a messianic prophecy of Jesus. And what does it predict he will do? Obviously, he sit on David's throne. <laughs> right. <laughs> Establish a new kingdom mm-hmm. of righteousness and justice. Mm-hmm. He will have authority. Uh, what do you have in verse 6? I have an authority will be on his shoulders. Oh, the government? The government. Yeah. The authority rests on the shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, notice his name. Wonderful Counselor. Mm-hmm. As the Messiah kind of messes that up. It's wonderful Counselor. It's not two separate entities. It's, it's Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. That makes more sense. It seems to be a nonviolent kind of government, doesn't it? And if you look at the context, um, verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in pitch dark land, light has dawned. You mentioned in your version something about the shadow of death. I think yeah. that's what they translate here, pitch dark land. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's literally shadow of death. Uh, or something like that. So that's the original. It's shadow of death. Shadow of death is the original. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is it a great light for the original? Uh, yes, it would be uh, or gadol. I would I would guess. I don't have my Hebrew Bible with me to check, but I would guess it would be uh, or gadol. So so there's another different mat- set of metaphors for salvation that whoever this this child is, which we understand to be Jesus, of course, is going to bring light, the great light. And and we are living in darkness. So what does that imply about salvation? And we're saved from the shadow of death, uh, which is part of that darkness. Somehow something is illuminated. Yes, and, and, it, and it brings life. It, it's a uh, illuminating and, and life-giving. Uh, I particularly love uh, verse 6. 
because it, it establishes clearly that the Messiah who is coming will be God. He'll have all the names of God. Uh, wonderful Counselor reminds us of the Holy Spirit. Mighty God reminds us of the Father. Eternal Father, of course, reminds us of the Father. And we think of Jesus as the Prince of Peace, but he has all of those, all four of those names. And, and so he is truly God. He is the manifestation of every member of the Godhead. In, in terms of his character and what he's like. Yeah, and it's really interesting how it links that with how he's very much human, too. Mm-hmm. Because unto us, a mm-hmm. child is born. Mm-hmm. Unto us is very much a human child. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, it's making the link that he's still, he's both. Mm-hmm. So I love that. Yeah. Because it's like he's given to us, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's just an amazing thing that we can hardly get our minds around, yeah. isn't it? I mean, that, yeah. that of all the planets in the universe, this, this one in rebellion is the one who gets God with us. Mm. Uh, and, of course, if we were to go back to Isaiah 7, I, I, you shall bear, a, woman, a young woman shall bear a son. And, of course, the Septuagint version translates virgin. Virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, of course, God with us. So whatever this light uh, that breaks into the darkness is, it seems to be a revelation of God, breaking down uh, the darkness. The the best way to get a darkness is is to get rid of darkness is to shine light. Yeah. I I once, I I used to teach a Sabbath school class down at the church in the, what is kind of the mother's (coughs) And I turned out the lights one day and I said, now I'm going to open the door and you tell me, does the light come in or does the darkness go out? So I open the door, light comes in. And the darkness is the absence of light. So darkness can't go out. When light comes in, darkness is scattered. And that is, that is the way God deals with evil. Is if there's darkness, shine light. If there's suffering, bring healing. If there's uh, discouragement, bring hope. Uh, God is always bringing in the positive to offset the negative, and and that that undergirds the whole creation story of Genesis one as well. Yeah. Um, that's the way He created the world, vis-a-vis uh, ancient Near Eastern texts in which the gods create the world out of violence. You know, it's interesting, too, like, we understand light to be energy, right? Mm -hmm. You know, electromagnetic Mm -hmm. spectrum and all of that Mm -hmm. stuff. So when God says, um, or the Bible says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. There's no absence of light. He's full of light. Mm -hmm. He's full of, we could call him, he is energy. Mm -hmm. So when in creation we see God spoke, it's energy spoke, Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. you know, creation happen. I think it's interesting because, you know, now the most sophisticated scientific theories point to whatever point where things started, there was a bang of energy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just think that's interesting that, mm-hmm. you know, in the end, it's, it's exactly what the Bible says. There was energy, you know, mm-hmm. and things yeah. happened. Yeah. Light is, God's light is life-giving. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why if we choose death, if we choose destruction, if we choose sin, uh, and we, we obstruct that light, we, we can't survive it. We can't, we can't live in it. Okay, uh, let's look at Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 10. Uh, I'll go ahead and read this one. A shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse. A branch will sprout from his roots. The Lord's Spirit will rest upon him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of planning and strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in fearing the Lord. He will, uh, won't judge by appearances or decide by hearsay. He will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. He will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth and by the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt around his hips and faithfulness the belt around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. 
calf and young lion will feed together and a little child will lead them. The cow and bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and a lion will eat straw like an ox. A nursing child will play over the snake's hole. Toddlers will reach right over the serpent's den. They won't harm or destroy anywhere on my holy mountain. The earth will surely be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations will seek him out, and his dwelling will be glorious. This is another messianic prophecy. Uh, what does it? What do you think it portrays? Sounds like peace. Uh-huh. <clears throat> is this possibly a projection of the new heaven and the mm-hmm. new earth? Yeah. And if that's the case, it's all about the end of violence and and. Um, True judgment, that is not judgment by people's claims, but judgment by the real truth, by real evidence. And there will be a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of planning and strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in fearing the Lord. There's, there's understanding, there's planning, there's thinking. And that leads to the earth being filled with the knowledge of the Lord just as the water covers the sea. So, so there's that, that knowledge and understanding is the, is the knowledge and understanding of God. And I love the first half of verse 9. They won't harm or destroy anywhere on my holy mountain. In fact, mm-hmm. I think I have decided, this mm-hmm. is quoted two times in Isaiah. I think I've decided that is my favorite verse mm. in the Bible. Mm. Uh, that there, there will be no violence in that new heaven and new earth. Uh, everybody will know and understand God, and in that knowing and understanding Him, every violent way is ended. Mm. And I think that it's interesting, this understanding that leads to nonviolence, it's not a knowledge like an intellectual knowledge. Mm by itself it's, a knowledge, it's an experiential experiential knowledge. and like appreciative knowledge where you actually are not just saying wow God is God is um, so loving he's full of love and you and you see that but you also um, adore it you abra- embrace you it embrace it and you respect it like the highest thing out there mm-hmm. because I mean the devil Knows he knows he knows that, doesn't he? And he's very violent. Yes, yes. It, it, that, just knowing that God loves us doesn't save us. Um, that love has to come into our hearts. Mm-hmm. It has to permeate our lives. Uh, we have to embrace it. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think this does have to be like the new, the earth made new and heaven, because because I think the transition it makes here earlier, um, it says that in verse 4 it talks about um, the first few verses are talking about how you know he comes but then mm-hmm. in 4 it says how he'll judge the poor and so on mm-hmm. but then it says he shall smite the earth yeah and yeah let's the let's work on that part he shall strike the violent i don't that is second coming or the land uh, i think so because revelation uses this passage in revelation 19 to talk about the second coming uh-huh. uh, he will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth what is the rod of his mouth that's that's the imagery used in Revelation 19 hmm. what is the rod of his mouth isn't it his word <coughs> it sounds similar to the sword double edged mm-hmm. sword mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I, I see the rod of his mouth as as his word having tremendous power and then it says, by the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. What does breath of his lips remind you of in the Bible? Creation. Creation. He breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. How can that kill? Doesn't that give life? Now this, by the way, is picked up on by Paul in Second Thessalonians. Second uh, Thessalonians 2 verse 8 Then the person who is lawless will be revealed The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath from his mouth 
when the Lord comes, his appearance will put an end to him. So our perception is that when Jesus comes and announces, Awake, awake you who sleep in the, in the dust, his voice will just overwhelm the wicked. And they will start running and crying for the rocks to hide them from his face because they can't handle his face. And then he breathes into the righteous who come up from the graves the breath of life. And that breath slays the wicked. It isn't that God has a two different kinds of breath or, or two different kinds of um, faces or, or whatever. It is that the same thing that gives life to the righteous destroys the wicked or, or ends the wicked's existence. And that's what God meant when he said to Moses, no one can see my face and live. In a sinful state, we can't. Could the breath um, have any similarity with the knowledge that fills the earth? somehow because it's talking here about the breath and then mm-hmm. the earth will be mm-hmm. full of the knowledge of God well certainly when he comes there's there's knowledge isn't there I mean seeing God face to face is very different than just studying about him it's, it's things are much clearer I also wonder and I, this might be taking it too far but it just occurred to me that you know breath is like um, movement of air uh-huh. you know and uh, the wind is um, often associated with the Holy Spirit. Sure. Mm-hmm. So it's His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, when it comes with full force on us that ha- accept Him, right? Mm-hmm. It it renews us, right? And right. it gives us life. Right. But for someone that doesn't accept it, the, Holy Sp- the, the beautiful breath of the Holy Spirit, His power actually makes makes a person very guilty and very scared because it's full of power. Mm-hmm. And so that fear, it's like where people say, oh, rocks, fall on me, yeah. because they they want to escape that yeah. guilt, that terrible yeah. guilt. It, there's, there's a statement somewhere to the effect that the wicked never really, because they have shut themselves off from the love of God, they have, they have, viewed, they have really wholesale bought into the darkness of Satan's lies, mm-hmm. and they've really accepted those lies and, and lived by them, uh, when when they see the glory of God, the face of Him who is love, they can't discern it that it's love. Mm-hmm. They see Him as a tyrant. They yes. see Him as the way they have come to view Him, and so um, yeah. the, that seeing of His glory is just very threatening and very, like you say, it, it, it sparks terror. Well, similarly, let's go to Isaiah 33, verses 10 to 16. You want to read that, Christine? Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff and bring forth stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you, and the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear, you who are far away, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the devouring fire? Who among us can live with everlasting flames? Those who walk righteously and speak uprightly, who despise the gain of oppression, who wave away a bribe instead of accepting it, who stop their ears from hearing of bloodshed and shut their eyes from looking on evil. They will live on the heights. Their refuge will be the fortresses of rocks. Their food will be supplied, their water assured. Okay, uh, this is almost like t- looking at the same thing we were discussing, but from the perspective of the sinner. And <laughs> it's important to know who God is talking to here. You conceive sh- straw, you give birth to stubble, your breath is a fire that devours you. Um, he's talking to the destroyer. In verse 1, uh, the chapters is given to the destroyer. Um who himself has not been destroyed. And who is the destroyer in the Bible? Satan. Satan. So he's saying, you conceive straw, you give birth to stubble, your breath is a fire that devours you. It's talking about like the the primogeniture of evil, okay? Who originated it all, who gives who 
conceives it in his mind, he gives birth to it in action, and, he, and, and the baby of evil takes its first breath, and it is a fire that will consume it. So here we have breath again, but it's, it's looking at it now from the person who breathes, who receives the breath, and it is a fire that consumes them. And then it talks about who can live with the devouring fire, who can live with the everlasting blaze. And, and this seems to have to do with the time of trouble. Uh, these, these chapters are very uh, apocalyptic and eschatological in content. So it seems to have to do with the time of trouble. But at the same time, there's like a looking forward to uh, of eternity. Who is it that can live in God's devouring fire and, and what consumes evil? Because love consumes hate. Love embraces hate. And by embracing it, consumes it and destroys it. Uh, who can who can live in that consuming fire? Um, and then it talks about those who who are are righteous, who speak tr- the truth, uh, who don't uh, re- accept profit from extortion, uh, who refuse a bribe, and who won't listen to bloody plots. That is, uh, plots of violence. Oh, is that what that's saying? Because I was wondering what that meant. I wonder if I was wondering, like, does that mean just like not watching like <laughs> terrible movies? <laughs> you know what well, I mean? <laughs> there could be something to that. <laughs> I wasn't uh, sure what it was talking about there. Because you know, sometimes like when you listen to the news and stuff, you can't help hearing about you know like wars and people getting killed right, and like. Right. So that's how you I I don't think it's talking about that kind of thing. Although I do think that by beholding we become changed and we do well to think about what we look at. Yeah. But it's it's more um, plots to kill people. Not being involved in that. Yeah, not getting involved in a plot to kill someone. Okay. Yeah. So, but, yeah, and I don't want to take this off into a horrible tangent, but, like, it does make me wonder about people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who were involved in, like, a plot to kill Hitler. I have wrestled. I have wrestled with that. Although there's a, actually a redeeming new biography of him, yeah. in which the author contends he really was not involved in that plot. Oh, really? Oh, I'm very interested. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's reexamined the evidence, and he he feels that most people are wrong about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Because which which would really relieve me yeah. because I I really admired Dietrich Bonhoeffer yeah, for the stance he took and 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 everything and his courage. And, and I appreciate that he struggled with that idea. Yes. Yeah. Well, everybody did during World War II. Um, certainly C.S. Lewis and his uh, Perilandra, he wrestles with that, and he comes out with, it's okay for it to kill evil with evil. You know, and mm-hmm. To me, the, the telling thing about that is that nobody, nobody was able to kill Hitler. Only Hitler could kill Hitler. <laughs> And then to me, that's that's like God saying, "Did you get that?" <laughs> mm, that's that's true. That's very true. So you think that this is specifically saying that? that yeah. Mm-hmm. So this would be Plot, one support, plots to kill. One support of saying nonviolence. No yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because here's the thing: once we engage in violence, uh, we're becoming like the ones who are doing violence to us. And, and if, that's why it's so important how we see God in the death of the wicked, uh, because if he actively destroys the wicked, then he's he, qualitatively, maybe not motive, but qualitatively, he's the same as the wicked. Um, he's just bigger and more powerful and can do it easier. And if he's going to do it that way, why not do it that way in the beginning and save us all this terrible, terrible suffering? So there's, there's just a host of things tied to that. Okay, let's move to some happier chapters. Yeah. <laughs> Isaiah 40, and we'll look at verses 1 to 11. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, 
and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The voice said, Cry! And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid, say unto the cities of Judah, Behold, your God. Behold, the Lord will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward with him, is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. It's a very positive one, isn't it? Um, so how would you describe salvation in those verses? It's kind of uh, like a parent, kind of parental kind of, you know? Mm-hmm. Actually, the, the image of a shepherd was the image of an ancient Near Eastern king. Hmm. Uh, kings were supposed to be good shepherds of their flocks. But here, this king, it, it really emphasizes the the care, the tenderness, the taking care of, of the flock and carrying the weak in his bosom. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also the part about leveling. Make a level highway in the wilderness for our God. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill shall be flattened. Uneven ground become level and rough terrain a valley plain. What is that referring to? Let me give you some keys. Okay. <laughs> Elsewhere in the Old Testament, mountains and hills were the proud, and the proud were the wicked. So this is leveling the, pride, the proud and raising up the, the humble, the weak, the disenfranchised, the marginalized. It's equalizing everything. There's there's no high or low. There's no rich or poor. There's no experts and non-experts. There's in, in the plan of God and His Church. There's everything is to be equal. Mm. But um, is this is this um, equalizing something that happens before before the new earth? I think it is. I think it's. Um, this is clearing the way for the coming of Jesus. Is the way I see it. And and I see this. Uh, you remember, a voice is crying out, "Make a way straight in the desert, a, a highway for the wilderness for our God." That's the message of John the Baptist before Jesus comes the first time. Yeah. He quotes Isaiah here when they come and ask him, "Who are you?" Uh, he says, "A voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord." So it says, prepare you the way, so that would be before he comes, right? Mm-hmm. So it seems clear it's before, yeah. but how, how does that, how is that connected, or how is that reconciled with the verse that says, let the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest? And we understand the harvest to be the second coming. I think, I think what it means is the wheat will, ex- will have this kind of experience. Mm. The tares won't. <laughs> They'll keep their hills and their valleys and, yeah. and, and do it that way. Yeah. But the wheat will have this experience where, where everybody's uh, one. And, and Christina knows this project very well, but I was privileged to be part of a, a book project where people came together and there were housewives and um, medical doctors and theologians with doctorates and and computer programmers and etc all working together on this book and and there was no sense anywhere of well, I'm an expert writing for this book but you're not <laughs> you know there's there was none of that we just we all just contributed according to 
uh, our thought process and, and our, our way of seeing God. And, and the interesting thing is that the Holy Spirit used that to give us one voice. Uh, and that, that book, I've, I've read that book, and I've been amazed at how it's, it feels like one person wrote it instead of a whole bunch of people. I mean, there's, there's, some, there's some differences here and there, but overall, it seems to have one voice. So I think that's what this is talking about, the kind of experience that God's people are going to have among the wheat, hopefully the wheat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, I think it would be easy to think that maybe, you know how like the, like some some people believe there's maybe a millennium of peace before Jesus comes. Or some, yes, some a, a lot of evangelicals do believe that. Right, and, and this could almost be kind of, a smaller version of that where his church has an era of mm-hmm. unity before he comes. But mm-hmm. maybe it's a segment, like like you were saying, just like the weed. You know, there still be tears in the mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think it's talking about um, God's people before he comes. So here's salvation in the, in the sense of a good shepherd rescuing sheep, protecting them, ministering to them, treating them tenderly and compassionately. What a picture of salvation that is. And it's also a picture of restoration. So Isaiah 41, 8 to 13. It's the next chapter. I will read it. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, offspring of Abraham, whom I love, You who I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I chose you and didn't reject you. Don't fear, because I am with you. Don't be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will surely help you. I will hold you with my righteous strong hand. All who rage against you will be shamed and disgraced. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will look for your opponents and won't find them. Those who fight you will be of no account and will die. I am the Lord your God who grasps your strong hand, who says to you, do not fear. I will help you. Do not fear, worm of Jacob, people of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. So um, is it salvation for God to deliver us from fear? And those who bring us fear? What about fear of God? I think a lot of times uh, we have taught salvation as kind of involving fear. That fear is a good thing, gets us saved. Um, but but here, salvation is ceasing our fears, ending our fears of God and, and of those who we think are coming up against us. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 7. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his teaching. Thus says the Lord, God, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind and bring out the prisoners of the dungeon from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. Okay. Notice the way he brings salvation here. Uh, I will put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He won't cry out or shout aloud or make his voice heard in public. So he's not going to come ranting. He's going to speak softly. He won't break a bruised reed. He won't extinguish a faint wick. 
But he will surely bring justice. And, and keep in mind, Old Testament justice is is saving people. I remember the judges of, of the book of Judges. They were really saviors. They saved uh, Israel from their oppressors. And, and justice also means looking after the weak, the marginalized, the disenfranchised, and so on. Uh, the poor, the widows, the orphans. And then um, is to be a light to the nations, to open blind eyes and lead prisoners from prison and those who sit in darkness from the dungeon. Uh, it suggests that sin makes us weak and vulnerable and that it puts us in this dark pit where there's no light. And when, when the, the Messiah comes, the servant, which I think is the Messiah figure here, uh, when the Messiah comes, he will shed light. He will bring us out of that pit. He will minister to us and, and make sure that our failing courage isn't quenched and, and that sensitive people are, are not uh, broken. He will minister to the weak. And it's interesting, too, that here, you know, like in, in the fourth commandment, God puts a seal saying, I, the creator of heaven and earth, you know, and he puts that seal on it here. It's kind of similar language in verse five where he says, the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched, you know, it's like he puts his mark like saying this is going to happen. Well, didn't, do, didn't Jesus do some of his best miracles that fulfill this passage on Sabbath? To open the blind eyes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he did that one on Sabbath. On Sabbath, yeah, that one. And it's interesting too that here, it's I'm sure part of it is is actually um, literal to open blind eyes, but it's also maybe on Sabbath, maybe some of his best lessons. You know, we don't know mm-hmm. we're given. Yeah. You know, because it it links blind eyes to bringing prisoners from the prison, mm-hmm. and that's figurative. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. linking those two, because yeah. it's it's linking blindness with a like a spiritual right, like a mm-hmm. imprisonment, and then them sit in darkness out of the prison. So the prison house is not a literal thing, but maybe no. it's what it's what sin does to us. Sin imprisons us because we can't see the light, we can't see the truth about God, and and I believe that everything, all of our sins, are the result of not having enough of the love of God in our hearts. It's a, we're, we're, we have a terrible love deficit. Mm-hmm. And that all of our addictions and all of our, our harmful practices and all the things we do to hurt other people is all stemming from that deficit mm-hmm. of love. Um, okay, let's move on to the next page, page 6. And uh, Isaiah 44 21-28 Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. I have formed thee, thou art my servant. O Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forests and every tree therein, for the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself, that frustrateth the tokens of the liars, and maketh diviners mad. That turneth wise men backward, and maketh their knowledge foolish. That confirmeth the word of his servant, and performeth the counsel of his messengers. That saith to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah ye shall be built. And I will raise up the decayed places thereof. That saith to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple, Thy foundation shall be laid. 
So this is talking about the restoration of Jerusalem. But um, how could we characterize this in terms of salvation? In other words, could we use this as a kind of a, a big metaphor for salvation? And if so, what is salvation here? Well, 22, it seems to link its salvation from sin because I've blotted out. Mm-hmm. Well, understandably, the reason they ended up in exile is because of their sins. So, so part of restoring them is to restore them from their sins. And that's like the, it's interesting. That's the first part, and then later it's like the temple in Jerusalem and yeah. all that stuff. But the first thing is like the sin, dealing you know? dealing with sin and then restoration. Yeah. And you notice that, and this is a theme throughout Isaiah: the sin is viewed as redemption. And redemption was a very real process in, in ancient Israel and in, in the ancient Near East. People often ended up in slavery because of debt. And it was if some relative had the power to redeem them, in other words, pay back mm-hmm. what they owed. Uh, it's similar today in uh, lands where people are uh, made to work as slaves, basically, to pay back their debts. Uh, somebody, some relative manages to acquire the money to buy them back and redeems them. Mm-hmm. So that, that theme of redemption is a very strong one in Isaiah. Uh, what does Yahweh redeem us from? And I think here it, it makes it clear uh, he redeems us from sin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to hear that he, it specifically, you know, makes that connection redeeming from sin in the first few verses, mm-hmm. and then once again he goes back to the creator idea, mm-hmm. where he's like created you since you were like mm-hmm. little tiny bit of DNA becoming into a human, you know, <laughs> in the womb, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then all things made the earth, you know, and all of that, and then he l- links his creatorship to. How his his word never fails, mm-hmm. because he's talking about how diviners or people that think they can tell the future, they go crazy because they can't tell the future sometimes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. And and people that think they know have everything all put together scientifically or otherwise, they don't, you know. But then he says that his prophecy, and that's where he has that prophecy of Cyrus, it it will come true, and it did. So mm-hmm. it's kind of I don't know. It's linking like his. Second coming is also a prophecy, you know, and mm-hmm. it's going to be true and it's going yeah. to hold. Um, you can see a lot of parallels between God who who saves us. He He's not a passive savior. Mm-hmm. He is an active savior. He mm-hmm. He saves us from sin in a very active manner and rebuilds us after all the damage that sin has done. Let's look at Isaiah 48, 17 to 22. The Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, proclaims, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you for your own good, who leads you in the way you should go. If you would pay attention to my commands, your well-being would be like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would be like the sand, and your descendants like its grains. Their names would be never eliminated, never wiped out from before me. Go out from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans, report this with a loud shout, proclaim it, broadcast it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They weren't thirsty when he led them to the deserts. God made water flow from the rock for them, split the rock, and the water flowed out. There is no well-being, says the Lord, for the wicked. So, So when God is our Savior... Uh, he provides, he cares for us, he rescues us, he takes us out of exile, he redeems us. Again, the overarching metaphor for salvation in Isaiah. Okay, one last passage, Isaiah 50 to 1 to 52, 12, and we're not going to read this, this is much too long. What I'd like you to do is, is silently look through it for metaphors of salvation. Well, there seems one here, I don't know if it's so much redemption as it is uh, uh, more of like a shield. Mm-hmm. Um, in verse 7 and 8, the Lord will help me. I won't be confused, confounded. 
Um, and then mm-hmm. in verse 8, he justifieth me, kind of like in a court of law. He's like your your lawyer. <laughs> who Who is my adversary? Like nobody can stand against me because he's, mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. There's also the metaphor of light again in chapter 50. God opens the ear of the rebellious. Yes, opening the ear. To opening the ear. To open the ear is to say something very confidential and very important and significant. Um, it's an expression in Hebrew that they used for someone to come up to you and say, "Let me open your ear," meaning I have a message oh, for you. It's a little secret. <laughs> And it's interesting that if, if now that you say that, it made me wonder if it's connected to how, you know, that verse that says that he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. You know, mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. opening the ear. Yeah. If you look at 51, his teaching, like the teaching will go out from me. In verse 4, my justice as light to the nations. In other words, God is going to reveal true justice. And he's going to he's going to teach the nation. And then there's victory. I'll quickly bring my victory. Salvation. My salvation is on its way, and my arm will judge the peoples. And his salvation endures forever. Righteousness and salvation are tied together. And some mm-hmm. versions translate salvation as vindication. Yeah, that's interesting because that 50 had that kind of two, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, he justifies me, and here it's mm-hmm. my righteousness is near. And, and if we're, and you know how we linked earlier his saving us from our sins with his mm-hmm. salvation? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it's through saving us from that that he saves us, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in, and in verse 7, I think it's really cool how maybe part of that salvation, like, saving us from sin is the people in whose heart is my law mm-hmm. you know it's like it's something in our heart that changes not mm-hmm. not like oh yeah we know the Ten Commandments by heart you know like we, we can repeat it it's more than mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. yeah well let's look at Isaiah 52 verse 7 and we'll close with that how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of a messenger who proclaims peace who brings good news, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God rules. Um, God as a ruler is a savior. Mm-hmm. It seems to be his predominant message, his predominant role. And notice that the, those who bring salvation proclaim peace, good news, salvation. And we're ready for the suffering servant, which we'll have to do maybe next time or the next, depending on how things stack up next time. So, our time is fast gone. We need to depart and go to church. So let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you that you have come to redeem us from the darkness of Satan's lies. You have come to redeem us from our sins, Mm -hmm. the ways we try to destroy ourselves and others. Mm -hmm. We thank you that you have come with the power to save and that nothing can stop you from saving us if we cry out to you for help and for salvation. Thank you that we can trust you to save us and to completely redeem us. And we ask you to do this today. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.